This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court's decision to hear a challenge to a New York gun control law is causing angst for New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio. The Supreme Court's going to consider making it easier for people to walk around with a gun. I mean, that's just backwards and dangerous. So I heard that news and my heart sank. It's been more than a decade since the court issued a major gun rights decision. And this case will put the justices in the middle of one of the country's most fractious debates, with a new conservative majority on the court deciding whether the government must allow most people to carry a handgun in public for self-defense. Joining me is Second Amendment expert Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. The court hasn't taken up a major gun rights case in more than a decade. And in June, it passed up challenges to the New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Maryland laws. Why do you think the justices are taking this now? Well, I think this is really the result of three justices appointed to the Supreme Court by Donald Trump. All three justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, all have strong records against gun control and in favor of an expansive reading of the Second Amendment. So the short story is basically that the personnel on the court has changed and moved to a more pro-gun direction. And so we're likely to see the Supreme Court take this case and more cases on the Second Amendment in coming years. Does it seem a little bit odd that in the midst of all this gun violence and a series of mass shootings, they decide to take up a gun rights case? I mean, the timing seems inappropriate. Well, I think that the justices are not that concerned with the timing with regards to these constitutional issues. This is an issue that has been at the court's doorstep for a long time. If the court waited until the gun violence was diminished in America, they'd never rule on this case. We have mass shootings all the time. So the court feels that it has an obligation to clarify the scope of the Second Amendment. Several of the justices have called for the court to take more Second Amendment cases and to provide more clarity. And it seems like the court is finally going to heed that call. So tell us about the New York law and the gun rights at issue. Well, the basics of the New York law is that it's discretionary permitting for concealed carry. If you want to carry a firearm on the street, you can carry one concealed, but you have to get a permit first. And under New York law, you have to have a proper reason to carry a gun. And that means it's not just the fear of someone attacking you. You have to have a very direct and specific threat that warrants carrying a firearm. And this issue arises because the Supreme Court in the Heller case said you have an individual right to bear arms, but that case was only applicable to firearms in the home. And the court left open the question about whether the Second Amendment right extends outside of the home. And if it does, a law like New York's, which is also in place in Massachusetts and similar laws in New Jersey and California, these laws effectively prohibit most people from carrying guns on the streets. So this is an important constitutional question the court will address. Is New York's law the most restrictive, the least restrictive? How does it compare to the other states' laws? Well, New York and about six other states have pretty restrictive discretionary permitting. 
Um, by the nature of the law, it doesn't have to be restrictive. Law enforcement could, in their discretion, give permits to just about anyone who walks through the door as long as they're a lawful gun owner. But the way these laws operate in practice in New York and in other states is effectively to be a denial of the right to have a firearm on the streets. In Los Angeles County, for instance, where we have over 10 million residents, there's only a few hundred ordinary civilians who have a permit to carry a concealed firearm. But many states allow it. The vast majority of states allow concealed carry. About 44 states allow concealed carry with something called shall issue permitting. That is to say there's no discretion on the part of law enforcement about whether to grant the permit or not. If you're a law-abiding person, you have a clean record, you get your permit to carry a firearm. That's the majority view among states in America. And overturning the restrictive laws in places like California and Massachusetts and New York has been one of the big goals of gun rights advocates for a long time. The NRA says the right to carry a concealed weapon outside the home is perhaps the single most important unresolved Second Amendment question. Do you agree with that? I think it is one of the most uh, important unresolved Second Amendment questions. We might also add that the Second Amendment doctrine is a little bit unclear as to what the governing standard of review is that courts should apply to gun control laws. The lower courts have generally um, agreed with the idea of intermediate scrutiny. But there's some justices on the Supreme Court, such as Thomas and Kavanaugh and Barrett, who've suggested that that's not the right way to think about gun control laws and that we should have a history and tradition standard that only allows gun control laws that have historical analogs to survive constitutional scrutiny. So uh, there's a couple of big issues in the Second Amendment, but certainly whether you have a right to carry a gun outside of your home is one of them. Is there any way to the fact that the New York law has been on the books for something like 100 years? Well, you know, for some of the justices, they say that historical analogs are key and that we want to see that there's a history and tradition of these kinds of restrictions. There's clearly a long history and tradition of discretionary permitting for concealed carry. These laws were adopted virtually in every state in the 1920s and 1930s. So we have laws that are almost a century old. However, it's very possible that even some of those history-minded justices will say, hey, we look to the law in 1791 when the Second Amendment was finally ratified, not to the law of the 1920s. Did they have handguns in 1791, though? They did, but the technology was very different than the technology of handguns today. Uh, Generally, you wouldn't carry a loaded firearm back in the founding era because gunpowder was highly explosive and uh, it was a hazard for you or anyone around you to have a loaded firearm. Um, there's And indeed, there's been some interesting studies looking at databases of the use of language back in the founding era. And they find that the language of right to keep and bear arms is used almost exclusively back in that era uh, to mean a military possession of firearms, only in the context of military service. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how the originalist justices react to that originalist evidence that suggests that the right to bear arms is not a right to carry a gun in case of confrontation, but a right to carry a gun in the event of a military attack. And have the federal appeals courts been split on this issue? 
Yes, there is a split on this issue, and it's one of the reasons I think that the Supreme Court has decided to jump in, maybe despite the gun violence in the headlines. One of the things the court often does is resolve splits among the different federal circuits, and there is a split uh, among the circuits on the issue of discretionary permitting for concealed carry. Most circuits have said that it is constitutionally permissible to have discretionary permitting, but the D.C. Circuit suggested that such a law was unconstitutional. And so it was really probably only a matter of time before the court stepped in to resolve that conflict. So the Supreme Court expanded gun rights in 2008 and 2010. Five of the six conservatives on the court have signaled in various ways that they're displeased with how the lower courts have have been interpreting this. Is this a done deal? Is it almost a certainty that New York's law is going to be reversed? Well, you know, it's hard to always predict the future with certainty, but it does seem pretty clear that there is a strong five-justice majority in favor of expanding Second Amendment rights. And that's not even counting Chief Justice John Roberts, who voted with the majority in the Heller case. A lot of people suspect that John Roberts was lukewarm on gun rights and maybe not interested in expanding gun rights further, as it didn't seem he was supporting taking cases, raising this issue earlier. But it does seem now with Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, adding to Justices Alito and Thomas, uh, that we do have five justices that are ready to expand the Second Amendment. If they expand it in the context of this case, will that mean that everyone can get a carry permit in New York and elsewhere? We'll have to see exactly how the court shapes up its remedy, but it does seem likely that the court is going to strike down discretionary permitting laws in places like New York, Los Angeles, and Boston, and as a result, that we're likely to see far more guns on the streets of these cities being lawfully carried. I mentioned earlier that in Los Angeles, you only have a few hundred people with concealed carry permits. Well, if the court says that California has to issue permits to people who are law-abiding and otherwise not violating any gun laws, we're likely to have several hundred thousand people lawfully carrying guns on the streets of Los Angeles. So this ruling could have a major impact. It's not just theoretical. Will you explain the arguments on both sides briefly, You know what they're likely to come out with? Absolutely. So first we start with the text of the Constitution. The, the Second Amendment says refers to a right of the people to keep and bear arms. What the Supreme Court in the Heller case suggested is that that's the protection of two separate rights, a right to keep arms and a right to bear arms, a right to keep arms in your home for personal protection. And the court suggested, although it was not, uh, it was only dicta in that case, that the right to bear arms meant the right to carry a firearm uh, in the, on the streets in case of confrontation. What we're going to see is that uh, advocates for concealed carry are going to say that um, the, the court is bound to respect the Heller case and to strike down these discretionary permitting laws. Whereas the gun safety uh, movement and uh, in their amicus briefs and the state of New York are going to say that there's a long history and tradition of regulating concealed carry. Um, and, and as a result, the court should uphold uh, the discretionary permitting law. If the New York law is reversed, does that automatically mean that the laws in other states like New Jersey, Massachusetts will fail as well? Effectively, yes. It wouldn't be automatic because those laws 
uh, might have slight differences in their phrasing or whatnot, and uh, the laws won't be immediately taken off the books. But you can expect to see gun rights advocates immediately file lawsuits challenging gun restrictive carry laws in other states, uh, and it would they'd likely earn summary judgment in their favor pretty quickly. So it wouldn't be immediate, but there's no doubt that the effect of a Supreme Court ruling saying that New York's discretionary permitting law is unconstitutional would mean the fall of discretionary permitting laws in the other remaining states that have them. Is there anything to read into the fact that the justices waited for several weeks to take this case? It was relisted four times, and then they modified the exact question. Is there anything to read into that? It's always hard to know what's going on behind closed doors with the justices' deliberations. Um, They had other cases they could have uh, taken. This case was particularly attractive, I think, because it involves Paul Clement, one of the best Supreme Court advocates out there. And uh, they know they're going to get good briefing and, uh, and good argument. One of the issues in the gun cases generally is that Often challenges uh, to gun laws on the basis of the Second Amendment have been brought by criminal defendants who just get caught up in gun laws. You know, they get caught violating a gun law, and they don't necessarily have the best Supreme Court advocates behind their cases. But Paul Clement is really a top-notch lawyer, and I'm sure the justices were swayed at least a little bit by his participation in the case uh, to take this one over some of the others. And whose side is he arguing for? Oh, Paul Clement is arguing for the gun rights side, for the challengers who are trying to take down New York's discretionary permitting law. He's been involved in a, a number of the major gun cases uh, at the Supreme Court, um, uh, including arguing the McDonald case back in uh, 2010 and participating on behalf of the Bush administration um, uh, in the Heller case itself uh, from the Solicitor General's office. So uh, he has a long involvement with the gun rights litigation, has been involved in many cases, uh, and, and I think that helps explain why the court took this case, uh, coupled with the idea that the personnel in the court has changed uh, in a more gun-friendly direction. Will you just explain the import of the Heller case? Well, the Heller case is often misunderstood. It was an important landmark case because the Supreme Court said for the first time uh, with clarity and uh, lacking ambiguity that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to have guns for personal protection. And the court struck down in that case Washington, D.C.'s ban on handguns in the home. Um, That case was uh, an important case for recognizing an individual right to bear arms. But in the aftermath of the Heller case, the courts really haven't overturned very many gun laws. It hasn't led to a radical rethinking of America's gun laws. It seems that this case may be, in fact, the New York case may even be more important in the long run than the Heller case, because this is a case that could indeed radically reshape gun laws if the court says the right extends outside of the home and discretionary permitting is unconstitutional, that's going to have a huge impact on the gun laws in effect in some of America's major cities like New York and Los Angeles and Boston. And at the same time, the court may take this opportunity to articulate a clear standard of review for future Second Amendment cases. And if the court chooses a standard that leads to more gun control laws being overturned, uh, then that will also be um, hugely important. So this case has the possibility to be a more important and far-reaching landmark than even the Heller case back in 2008. Looking at the Supreme Court's docket and the fact that they're taking this case, 
they've stayed away from gun rights. They've stayed away from abortion issues. They've stayed away from a lot of the hot-button issues. Do you think that taking this case marks a turning point in the Supreme Court that we're going to start to see what that conservative majority can do? I don't think there's any doubt that we're likely to see the court take on a number of major controversial issues in the coming years, from guns to abortion, gay rights, religious freedom, immigration. Um, uh, We do have a new uh, majority on the Supreme Court, and all of the new justices, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett, are all relatively aggressive in their views of pursuing the law and pursuing what they think is the right way to understand the law. They're not going to be bound too much by old precedents. And uh, we are likely to see the impact of the 2016 election for years to come in the Supreme Court. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. New anti-protest legislation has been sweeping the country. Since the summer's Black Lives Matter protests, Republican legislatures in at least 34 states have passed bills that target protesters beyond the laws already on the books. Joining me is First Amendment attorney Jeff Lewis. What are the different forms that these protest bills take? Well, the one that's grabbing all the headlines is the one that immunizes folks who are driving a car in a protest. And if they injure somebody while leaving a protest, let's say drive through a crowd, uh, that type of person is immunized from civil liability. That's the big one grabbing the headlines. And there's others in terms of criminalizing three people who are meeting at a protest and the police determine that those three people are acting in a disorderly fashion and are creating a risk of injury to others. There's a third one that caught my eye down in Florida, which criminalizes defacing or damaging historical monuments. You get up to 10 years and it's a felony for defacing monuments. That one caught my eye as well. Is this not core protected speech? I think it's absolutely uh, protected speech. Uh, The Florida law has already been the subject of a new lawsuit. I expect it to be, if not overturned, severely restricted because there are already laws on the books to criminalize property damage, property crimes. These new laws criminalize or seek to chill protesting. They seek to convince people to stay in their their homes and not go out on the street and, and protest. So explain the difference between those laws and the laws that are on the books. Well, yeah, right now, if you're on the street holding a sign peacefully protesting, you can't be arrested unless the big unless is the city declares or the local uh, police declares a illegal assembly. If an illegal assembly is declared and you fail to leave, you could be arrested. That already gives the police tremendous power to protect safety, and that's sufficient. These new laws are a big overreach. So do you think that they're punitive? Well, it's hard to say if it's intended to be punitive, but I could tell you this. They will absolutely have a punitive effect in terms of chilling people. People are going to decide to stay at home. They're not going to want to, for example, face the, uh, the prospect of being overnight in jail without bail Normally, people are released on bail, but one of these bills, I believe down in Florida, says uh, you you could be denied bail and forced to spend time in jail. People are going to make decisions not to go out and protest based on some of these new laws. What are the legal challenges to these laws going to look like? 
primarily vagueness at this point, because right now we're looking at the statute as it exists uh, in paper without having been applied to any actual protests yet. So it's a challenge to the form of the law for vagueness. People are going to say, we don't know what the police on any given day will determine is disorderly conduct or could cause a risk of injury. And so that'll be the primary challenge. But then as protests happen and as these laws start getting enforced, you'll see challenges of as applied, uh, these laws have a disparate impact on perhaps people of color or uh, members of the Black Lives Matter movement. Have laws like this been passed before and challenged before? You know, I do know that there was a wave of uh, new laws like this passed in 2017. Not not the most uh, extreme versions in terms of people uh, being immunized for driving through a, a protest crowd. But the other laws in terms of uh, participating in protests and escalating to, you know, what is called a riot. Those laws have survived challenges in the past, but these new laws really uh, are extreme, and I would expect them to at least be restricted in terms of the denial of bail and the uh, immunization of people driving through crowds. So the bill in Florida is called an anti-riot bill. Is that trying to paint it in a different light than it really is? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure opponents down there in Florida of the bill would call it an anti-free speech bill, because we already have laws in the books that deal with riots. The police in every state, always have the right to declare an assembly, uh, an unlawful assembly, in, a, in essence, a riot, and arrest anybody who doesn't leave. So this new law is just unnecessary. Calling it an anti-riot bill is just putting lipstick on a pig. And what about the so-called hit-and-kill bills? Do they present a special problem? Absolutely. It's a very aggressive approach for Florida to take, and I believe Oklahoma has one as well. Uh, if I were a First Amendment attorney challenging this law, that is the very first part of the new laws that I would challenge because it grabs headlines, it's counterintuitive, and people have a visceral response when you tell people about a law that allows you to run people over. Uh, I think that's unfair. That's Jeff Lewis. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.